Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast, the official podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. This is episode 63, titled Project 90, where we'll be taking you back to a look at RCA and the Walt Disney Company in the late 60s before the opening of Walt Disney World. Uh, I am your host, Todd McCartney, and sitting in with me on this now chilly evening, uh, Mr. J.T. Couser coming in from Ohio. How are you doing today, J.T.? I am great. Uh, got the snow tires on the car. Oh, there Just we go. We're, we're in that that mode and uh, getting ready for Christmas around here. Right. Winter break's coming up, getting exciting. And today, our very special Lake Buena Vista Historical Society ornament arrived. So that's oh, it's, they're it's in. huge. Dino Gertie is, is going to be galloping her way. Galping Gertie, I guess we could call her, uh, across the United States, and a couple donors are across the pond as well. So we're going to be getting that out. People are really excited about it. And coming in from the warmer climate, how you, you do have a long sleeve on, but it uh, must be balmy 71. Um, <laughs> it's a breeze. It, it is. Uh, hours. Aloha. It is, it is 56 as, of, as we speak right now outside. Ooh, oh, that's so we've got a little bit of the winter chill here. It's definitely uh, chilly for you. Sunny, yeah. sunny Florida. I can understand that. It's 27 here, so. Okay. Yeah, we uh, win. <laughs> all right. And uh, usually we introduce Brian P. Miles at this point. He is uh, taking this month off. He's got some holiday duties. He helps Santa out every year, uh, deliver gifts in the sleigh. So he, I can hear the sleigh bells in the background as uh, Brian's getting ready for Christmas. But he'll be back with us next month in the new year. But we do have a special guest setting in with us from the Big Apple is Mr. Ted Linhart. Welcome back to the show, Ted. Thank you so much, Todd. Yeah, thank, I'm glad to have you here. And Ted's one of our uh, gold member donors, so to speak. And, and Ted's got a, a uh, is, owns uh, DisneyDocs.net. And uh, Ted, maybe give a refresher to everybody what uh, DisneyDocs is and what you've what you've done with that site. Yeah, so it's my collection of documents related to the history of the development of the Disney parks going back to the 50s, also the 1939 and 1964 World's Fair. So the emphasis is on how Walt and others looked at the future and how technology could create cities and technology. And it's a very retro-futuristic focused site. That's what the documents are about. And you pretty much just nailed Project 90 on the head right there, too. <laughs> yes, so this document that we're talking about tonight is a perfect embodiment of everything that I love to collect and share, and I know is something you guys like as well. Yep. We actually, Ted, I always wonder what where are all the documents? Do you have like a room? Like you know, you open it it's up. A vault. And it's a vault. Yeah, like, what, you tell us where vault. what the system is. I have a bookshelf. It's not that exciting with drawers and binders, <laughs> and everything is in a drawer or binder. Some of the best documents are in more elaborate binders, leather with maybe a, an embossed 
uh, title on it, and others are just $8 cardboard little drawers that you buy at container store. I was hoping that you had something like the architects or the planner boards have. You know, you go into a town hall and they got those big drawers and they yes. big wide drawers Metal. and they pull them out. If a, perhaps I didn't live in Manhattan, that I would be able to have that. <laughs> can, can I ask, God forbid, what happens if, like, the place goes up? Oh, JT. Um, it's over? It's uh, I have insurance. Okay. Uh, but, yes, if there's a fire, luckily our apartment does have uh, sprinklers inside of it. Good. It's a good apartment building. But, yes, fire or water damage would be difficult, except the site does have a there's PDF of everything. Yes, so that's yeah. the point of it. Yes, yeah. All right, last question. Answer, if you want, the one you want, what's your most prized document you it have? It is the one we're talking about tonight. And oh, that's wow. Really? Not a, that's not a joke. I that didn't is, know that, asking yes, that, by the way. Yes, so. yes. It is uh, when uh, Hal brought up that we talk about this, I was like, that's perfect because this is my favorite item. So you'd give them all away just for this one? Well, I'm not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> right, JT's cool. looking for donors for the next bake sale. I'm, I'm excited. This <laughs> yeah, is awesome. Yeah. And, uh, and Ted, we actually just sent some documents to Ted that I had had sitting here. Never scanned them from the Future Magazine. So uh, I think he'll get those scanned and put up there. While it's not Disney documents, there's certainly it was an interesting piece uh, written, I think, in 19... I want to say... 79. 79 and 80 or 81? Yeah, there's, yeah, I think 79 and 81, I think, are the two issues. Yeah, so Future Magazine was taking a look at Epcot Center before it was open. So um, she'll scan those and get them up there. But, all right. But, boy, uh, that really is a Future Magazine, then. Yeah. <laughs> and see the future. All right. Um, so we've got uh, a couple things to go over. Uh, last month, how we, we took a trip to Thunder and Paradise. And then when we, re- we released our uh, interview uh, with Parker Rabby of uh, Rabco Industries, and uh, we got a lot of great response back. We even heard from somebody who is maritally related to Hulk Hogan through, through some level. Um, we got a lot of nice response back. People were you know, repeating it and, and retweeting it and saying, oh, my gosh, I completely forgot about this stuff. And it was it was really great to hear from from everybody. And uh, JT, we got a little fan mail from it, too, right? Yeah, a couple things. Uh, Scott Jensen wrote in. Uh, he just sent us some pictures of Hulk Hogan's place. It's called uh, Hogan's Beach Shop. Oh, there we go. And I don't have a location. I probably should have looked that up beforehand. I thought maybe Hal might know. but I think that was uh, I think that's in the Clearwater area. It, it over, reminds over me of like a, a Ron John surf shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a there's a Hulk Hogan dressed up sign twirler out in front. It's pretty cool. And then uh, another uh, listener, Stephen Myers, wrote us, and he basically said, uh, you know, he didn't give us the direct connection, but he says he's related to uh, Terry Hulk Hogan, uh, one way or another. And he said they've talked about this many times, and he uh, based on the stories he's had with with uh, Terry, where we we got a lot of it right, and uh, he even said uh, years later, Terry bought a scarab back in the day. Uh, he wanted uh, the hyper speed on it, so uh, pretty cool. And according to him, he put two Viper V10s in it, which is really really cool. So um, thanks for those messages on the uh, last couple episodes. I yep. did want to add, I do have a screen grab from our last uh, discussion where uh, Parker is his name, right? Yes. Parker was stating about how they had to chrome plate the engine exhaust pipes and all that. So I went through the the episodes and I found a uh, a pretty good screen grab of what he was talking oh, about. Oh, cool! 
So we'll uh, we'll put that on the show notes for the last episode here since awesome. it's it's already posted. And you know, I never got to mention that I have one piece of Thunder in Paradise production paraphernalia in my collection. I was browsing through a Goodwill one day in Tampa and I found a Thunder in Paradise crew polo shirt with the Thunder in Paradise <laughs> logo embroidered on it. Oh, so that's fantastic. That is that is in my collection. So if you've only listened to our main uh, episodes and you're a Thunder and Paradise fan, take a listen to 62.5. The um, All, all three of you. Yeah. And also Parker sent in some great photos of Thunder uh, out of the water and in the water with his father behind the wheel. And uh, it's, it's really neat. And then how uh, I am prepping... Uh, you know, your video collection, as we talked about, we, we have all the Thunder episodes, um, but I am prepping a, a, a edit for about an hour of all the greatest cuts and hits and everything that was filmed at Walt Disney World. We can't do the whole, everything. We'd probably be there for eight hours, um, but we're going to do a, um, a movie night with that coming up uh, probably in January to get people psyched for the new year. So uh, and I know you you're kind of working on the definitive uh, Walt Disney World filming guide for those three people um, that want to go live all the <laughs> yes. locations. So. Will there be a 3D version of it, like Horizon? <laughs> I have not figured out how to make the 3D version of Thunder in Paradise, but we did upscale one to HD, and it came out pretty nice. So using our new fangled software. So, so if you're a Thunder in Paradise fan, you want more, it's coming to you. Um, Brian, This was Brian's idea, and I think it's great because only words can only demonstrate and, and explain to you an, a little bit about what went on with the filming. And I think you need to see Hulk Hogan being thrown into a hydrolator as a jail cell. Um, you need that needs to be seen to believe, be believed. That's very much. That is very true. So I, I had my sister reach out and she's a, been a listener since day one, big Disney fan. And she goes, I don't know, JT, this episode is a little bit of a stretch. I go, Look, I get it, but you have to see the show. So now, you know, I need to send her some episodes. Yeah, you got to say, watch look, it. this is what we're talking about because it's seeing is believing. Yep, it may not rank up there of our number one episode, but you know, I think we we had to, we had to talk about it at some point. Mm-hmm, for sure. All right, so JT, what do we have in the listener mailbag? Got a good potpourri this month. Uh, first off, this is from Norris, and Norris, I I will tell you, I spent a little bit of time on this, and I am not done yet. Norris wrote in about the, uh, basically, this is a vehicle, you would have seen it, the the Grand Marshals of the Parade at the Magic Kingdom ride around in this. It's kind of like an open top, um, you know, old looking car from the, you know, 1900s. And now it's actually serving at Epcot to do a a character, you know, drive around since you can't meet the characters. It's, you know, they... There's a piece of plexiglass dividing the driver in Mickey and Minnie, but it's not about the car as much as the tires. And he reached out because... Obviously, uh, we're, we're in the former rubber capital of the world here in Akron. These tires on this car have a tread pattern that is legit just, uh, you know, 25 Mickey heads wrapped around the outside. Hmm. And I don't know how well the Mickey head tread block would fare in, like, high-speed rain driving. <laughs> but for, a, you know, a cavalcade down Main Street, it's fine. Um, so I dug into the tires a little bit trying to find anything. Uh, I did find out that it says on, I zoomed in on a couple pictures, that it is a Trelleborg tire brand. Oh. I did find it says an, it's, it's an S5 on another photo. I haven't found the S5 yet, but my plan is to reach out to this company, see what they say if they give us anything about this, this custom one-off. Now, there's only five tires, so it's something they could have bought a slick from them and somebody could have actually done this 
by hand. I mean, it's not that crazy with like a pattern or a template or something, so it might not have been done at the factory. But um, they're real skinny tires too, like a 205 series. So uh, it's it's unique to see. If you ever see it driving around, you've seen you've probably know what I'm talking about. But uh, Norris will will dig into this a little bit more and see if we can find anything else out on this tire. I just almost want to find the uh, the original what they're what they're basing it on. So. Next up, uh, this is from Tracy Brimhall. Tracy says, are there photos from back when Space Mountain was being built? Her dad, Larry, helped to build it. And if someone has a picture with him in it building it, that would be a cool surprise for a Christmas gift. Tracy, um, going to dig into it. If you go into our photo archive, you can search for Space Mountain. I don't know if we have any of construction with workers, but... Um, with it being, oh, what are we at? 23 days. By the time this is posted, maybe 15 days till Christmas. Uh, maybe a listener will share something if they spot something, or uh, you know, if I find something, our archives will send it your way. Yeah, I did find a couple with with some workers in it, and actually, if she, okay. if she searches Space Mountain Construction, uh, it will come up. And the the one specifically I'm looking at, if people want to go, is Space Mountain Construction Four, and another one uh, called. Space Mountain Construction. Uh, <laughs> so Here we go. We have a lot of work to do on our archive. Um, but yeah, if you put in Space Mountain Construction, you'll get them. So uh, JT, we can we can send a couple of those links to her. And as sure. always, if anybody wants to search, the archive is always growing as we better our keywords and search searchability and everything. I'll show you how, how we'll say how good or better the search has gotten. That's kind of what I use now when I do show notes. And I go <laughs> on there and it just it helps me find things instead of clicking through each individual section, yeah. which there there's so many sections now. So exactly. we've had a lot of people send us things um, that they've found online or even photos that they've had. But uh, one that comes to mind is that somebody recently sent us a, a an eBay item, uh, a rare treehouse villa brochure. So uh, some great photos on there that we'll get added to the archive. I saw that. That's a, it's like it's, octagon shaped. Yes, it like, is. Like the, it is incredible. Is it I don't know. How, it is an octagon. This, yes. Yes. Eight yeah. sides. All right. You so work in elementary you. school, so that's that's good that you. I know it's a that. little advanced for it me. Is. <laughs> uh, Tracy, great uh, message. Thank you for that. We'll uh, reply here to you with some some items. Next up, we have um, Mark Lempke. Mark says, "Hi guys, I love the three part horizons episode you did a while ago, and he's referring to our podcast episode, which was a three part epic grand uh, showcase of horizons." He says it was particularly interesting to hear the origins of the phrase, if you can dream it, you can do it. He lives in Gates, New York, near Rochester, and there is a Walt Disney Elementary School a half mile from his house. Its signs often include that famous quote, misattributing it to Walt Disney. Well, I need to call that principal. Uh, between my <laughs> job and child care responsibilities, I haven't had a chance to listen to every episode, so he apologize if we've covered this. Uh, he's always been intrigued uh, that each feature world pavilion back in the 80s and 90s uh, had logos. Do we have any stories behind those logos? What are they World's Fair inspired? So, how you're a logo guy, and I'm sure you know this answer off the top of your head, right? Yes, and <clears throat> I know that we talked about this in a previous episode, but the... Um, I can't remember when. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time. So, I believe the the primary designer of the Epcot logos was Norm Ayun, who was also the designer of the famous Flaming Chicken on the Trans Am, the hood of the Trans Am. He worked for he worked for General Motors before switching over and working for Disney, and he did the Epcot logo. And um, I believe there was a, a semi recent article on D twenty three talking about sort of the history of the main Epcot logo and the symbolism 
of it as kind of like a star and a flower and it went through he he said he did you know hundreds of different versions of these logos all by hand and uh I, i think they were really looking for you know some kind of you know visual identity for each of them and they weren't going to promote you know while they did promote the sponsor like that wasn't the main thing so you know at at a world's fair typically you know it was the name of the attraction but the sponsor was also probably quite large on the sign as well so Mm -hmm. they were they were looking for a system you know a design system probably inspired by the olympics and some of the other um sort of large-scale uh, events that had happened. So, you know, if, if you look at a winter Olympics every, or summer Olympics too, every, every time there's an Olympics, they redo those symbols for yeah. the different, uh, for the different events, like in whatever, in a completely different style, usually localized. So when they did the winter Olympics in Norway, they looked like Norwegian petroglyphs, um, that were there and, they, they keep kind of expanding on the style so they do something special every time so I, I think it was kind of in that spirit that they that they thought oh let's come up at least in future world with kind of like this uh, sort of a system with a circle and then something that pictorially represents uh, the idea behind the pavilion so spaceship earth was kind of this globe moving in space world of motion was kind of like a bullet with the air currents around so it cool. Yeah, the so land cool. was a globe with, you know, and it was with international too, right? When we look at this, you think about how those symbols were international, that they didn't need words to show what it meant. And that is actually a very good point because, and especially initially, they were very focused on this being a place of international travel, much like the World's Fairs. They expected a lot of people from overseas who didn't necessarily speak English. So you're right, Todd. You would look at that and immediately you could get the idea of what each one of those pavilions was about. So um, so they all opened, you know, there were, there were logos for each of the pavilions when they opened, with the exception of Wonders of Life, which did not open up with a logo. And it, uh, I actually wrote Imagineering and said, you guys didn't make a logo for this, <laughs> like as a teenager. And uh, eventually they they did hire someone uh, separate to uh, to do a logo for that. And uh, so then it finally did get a logo and it ended up on the Centorium. But um, yeah, and, and each one of the countries has a, um, a pictogram uh, with the name of the country as well, that's in a different system, but also part of a system. So, like, yeah. um, you can still see it today, I think, unless they've replaced it. It used to be on the load console for Mexico. Um, as you were walking up to ride the Rio de Tiempo ride, you could look on the load console and see the Mexico logo. Um, oh, right. So, right. I, I don't know if it's they've taken it off since they've changed it over to the Three Caballeros. I doubt it. Because that doesn't seem like the kind of thing they would spend money to change unless they needed to change out the system. Um, but those logos appeared on calendars uh, and on some merchandise uh, in the early days. So um, you can probably find in, in the um, actually in the um, Epcot opening preview book, which I know Ted has on his site. Um, those logos are all of the logos are available there. And that is a great document to look through. Um, very huge, ins- they take up like half a page in that. Yeah, document, I think. very inspiring for a young designer such as myself. <laughs> did Imagineering write back to you? Um, they did. They did. Oh. Do you have? Do you have that? Uh, 
I don't know if I do anymore, but I might. Look behind him, Ted. Do you think he has? <laughs> I think it's there. It's somewhere. somewhere. It's in that pile. Somewhere in my, along with all my reject slips from them. <laughs> Probably. Well, those would be interesting, too. Thank you, Howie. We appreciate your interest. Yes. Very cool. Well, that's uh, that, thanks for that, How. Uh, Mark, hopefully that answered your question. All right, our last message of the month is from Dane. Dane says, uh, hey, guys, we originally bought, brought a map home when we went to Disney World in 1977. But stupid me threw it out at some point. Well, don't worry, Dane. We all do that at the end of the trip. And who, who keeps the map? I mean, that's not a – unless you have a nice, fresh copy. Um, he recently bought a replacement on eBay and scanned it. And uh, he actually sent it to us, which is super nice. Thank you. It's the one from uh, – Obviously, he says it's post-1975 uh, because it has Space Mountain, but it's the one that's got the uh, multicolored tiles at the bottom of uh, each land and lists the attractions. Uh, but it's definitely a good one. It's got Magic Kingdom at the bottom with all the characters around it. I, I dig this map. It's very cool, so I appreciate the scan and uh, sharing it with us, Dane. So that's going to do it. I'm going to close up the mailbag for now. could only haul in so much through the snow. Reach out to us, podcast at RetroWDW.com for all your questions, comments, concerns. You can also send us messages uh, directly on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and also uh, drop us a phone call with a voicemail. Todd, do you want to say the number? 978-71-RETRO. And uh, we'll get those messages and possibly any way you reach out to us, you could end up on the show. All right, well, it's time for this month's Audio Rewind, and Hal, as always, is picking our uh, Audio Rewind mind bender, mind buster, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and uh, Hal, what's interesting is that um, you did stump a lot of people. There were not many responses, and of those, I would say only about 10, 12% actually got it right. A lot of people fell for it and went for Muppet Vision 3D. I have to say, I am shocked shocked because this song plays over and over again or at least it used to i assume it still plays over and over again on main street that's right let's take a listen all right so how why don't you let them know what that was that song is called beautiful beulah i might you know what it is it was a disney song it was from summer summer magic with go. Haley Mills and Burl Ives. So, oh, uh, Haley so Burl Ives. Wow. Tisk, 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 all of you that did not get it. You <laughs> should know better than that. Well, how we do just ask them from where it was. We don't ask for title, publication, and uh, you know, musical tempo. No, either, but so. they, should, they, should know, <laughs> they should know. They should know a Disney song. I mean, there we go. But some people actually picked up the actual name of it as well. And uh, we do have a winner this month. Congratulations to Carolina Nadal. So we will get you uh, your retro WW pins and Lake Buena Vista pins as well. And actually, guys, we just got a new one in. I, I, I don't have them they're in the closet right over there, but we got some Lake Buena Vista refrigerator magnets as well. Historical Society refrigerator magnets. So we'll drop one of those in there if you know the answer to this month's Audio Rewind. <music> If you think you know the answer to this month's Audio Rewind, send your guesses to contest at RetroWDW.com. All entries should be received by January 11th, 2021. All correct entries will be entered into a random drawing to pick the winner.
All right, well, it's time to get to our main topic this month. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, it is Project 90. So what is Project 90? Where can we go find information about it? And why, if Ted had to run from his apartment holding one document, <laughs> this would be the one. He's got fire blankets ready for it. <laughs> He's got all sorts of plastic bags to put it in case there's a water. I keep it in asbestos. Oh, it's a perfect, it. perfect. Yeah, that's the yes. way to do it. So. So we're going to go through a, a, a number of different things here. But for those uh, uninitiated to Project 90, it was it references a 90-day effort. Uh, started back in August of 1968. And that was part of Disney and RCA. And quick, JT, what does RCA stand for? Oh, I don't know. The, the dog's name. Right? <laughs> no, that, that's not the... Radio Corporation of America. So uh, RCA was known for their turntables and known for their different audio equipment and records and such, but they certainly were starting to get into uh, technology in, in, in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. Uh, and actually, I, I had an RCA TV for a long time. They were still, the, the, I shouldn't say they were making them. It was like the brand had been purchased probably so many times by that point. Um, and I actually lived near one of their main RCA offices uh, in um, Bridgewater, New Jersey, somewhere. There was a big RCA building that always they had They were still plugging through down. the 90s. I mean, they were, we had a couple shelf systems, you know, with the five disc yep. changers and the that sort of stuff. Exactly. My dad worked for RCA in the 60s. He produced cast albums of records. Oh, wow. Look at that. So, That's cool. So, and he worked in 30 Rock, where I worked until the pandemic. Hopefully, I'll go back. But um, So we both worked in 30 Rock. He came for RCA. Me for NBC, which is a forerunner, you know, a progenitor of RCA, yep. or spinoff, or I can't think of the right word, but yep. you get it. Yeah, <laughs> part, sure. part of. <laughs> so Yes. Formally exactly. part of. Exactly. So why are we talking about this? Well, uh, it was really a document that went over integrated information communi- communication system for Walt Disney World. And, um, you know, as, as Ted is going to take us through this, this was really an optimistic way of looking at how technology can help the hotel industry, touring Walt Disney World, checking in, checking out, using this thing called a magic band that would magically charge all your room. But who knows? We And so... We're gonna let uh, Ted run with this. We're gonna we're gonna you know interject things and and really kind of think about, you know, I joke about the Magic Band, but we're gonna hear a lot of things that came to fruition, um, and not just uh, you know uh, Magic Bands or or or, or rotary um, car- not crap. What's the thing we've been talking about? Where the 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 people counter that you walk through the, the- oh turnstiles turnstiles turnstile. Yeah, never mind. I'm just cut that whole thing up. So there's a lot of things in the park I'm sure you're going to you're going to recognize from this that have come out over time. So Ted, I will turn it over to you. I've got the document open and uh before I, I say one last thing here is that there's a nice note with Roy at the end that says Walt Disney World proposes to make a reality out of a community of future, a community that will be as unique in the year 2000 as it is today. So I hope we got another 20 years out of what we what we get here. So let's find out. So if you want to follow along, the document is on DisneyDocs.net. Just search RCA and you'll find it. Um, So I found this item on eBay when I first started collecting. Somebody who's not sold anything since, unfortunately, 
uh, put this on eBay to buy it now. That was very reasonable. And, I, and as soon as I saw the cover, and if everyone looks at the cover, it has Progress City on the cover. So immediately, which, you know, that image to me um, typifies and embodies so much about what I love about retro WDW and Epcot and Future World. So you can tell this is in the spirit of everything about what Walt, who was now dead for two years, thought about the future. Um, and it's a fairly oversized document. It's very elaborately printed. It's about 70, 80 pages. And it's essentially a business plan, but it looks like a publication. And uh, it says RCA Systems Development on the cover. Uh, this copy was owned, apparently, because his name is uh, kind of half uh, on a label that's half scratched out but still determinable on the cover of uh, Jim Pasilla, I think is the way you pronounce it, P-I-S-I-L-L-A, who was a human resources executive at Disney for many years uh, and by worked himself up to become uh, SVP of Disney Human Resources by the 80s. He's actually in Disneyland on one of the Main Street signs. So he's a fairly uh, big but maybe not as well-known um, Disney legend who, uh, I guess, owned this document. Maybe he, it was his copy that was given by RCA to Disney executives, and he was working in HR. And this document, this, this project, is a lot about how uh, Disney staff would interact with guests and how they would communicate with each other. So that's all lumped in under human resources. And I think it's funny. Someone obviously thought so much of this document that they set their coffee cup down on it at some point. Yes. <laughs> and there's a, there's a yes. coffee cup ring on it, which is horrible. There is a stain on it. Yes, yes, yes. They were not thinking. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm lucky that it was preserved as yes. much as it was uh, 55 years later. Uh, but yes, it was clearly used and uh, read through. But um, there, is a, there is a stain on it. I was like, oh, come because on, Jim. And a, that was in the yeah. meeting. It was given to him, and 50 other people got it, and he's in there, and he just set his drink down in the middle of the meeting. I, I believe that is – I actually, that is what I imagine actually happening, exactly like that. They're all lined up um, with everybody's name on them. Take and, your And shirts. speaking of names, too, I mean, the Project 90 team from Disney and, and WED and Disneyland, I mean, like, I mean, look at the names in there. I mean, not only Jim Pussy, as you as you mentioned, but you've got, um, you know, Dick Nunes, Billy Sullivan's in there. Um, you know, the, the list just goes on and on of the people that we've talked about. And, um, boy, Bob was a popular name then too. Bob Matheson, Dominguez, Johnny Cook, Cook Switch, Switch Taylor, 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 Cook, Pierce. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah. And it's interesting that they, yeah, they listed out everyone's names for both RCA and Disney. You, you do get a sense. Arthur Anderson was also brought in as a consultant. Um, you do get a sense from reading this that RCA, um, and Disney had a very tight relationship mm. and that this was done out of the spirit, uh, of, um, you know, creating something really special. So it, it comes with a letter that looks like a copy uh, to Don Tatum from uh, T.G. Patterson, who uh, is an RCA executive. Uh, and it says that RCA is pleased to submit this proposal to serve as the principal contractor for the information communication requirements for Walt Disney World. And um, it's dated January 14th, 1969. The document itself has a date printed on the cover, which is very unusual. Um, for something this elaborate so that you can really timestamp it that says December 1968. So when you open up the document, uh, by the way, Thomas T.G. Patterson is Thomas G. Patterson. He was the director uh, of the project uh, and, the, and the program manager of the project was Richard Baker. So you get into the table of contents and it's 71 pages long. So there's so much to look at. And it opens up with an acknowledgement that this project has been uh, around for a little while. 
they go into the fact that they gave themselves 90 days to create um, what they call a modular integrated system so that you can plug and play different pieces of what's needed over time and that there is a lot of cooperation between um, both parties and that there was a, a presentation to the Disney organization on November 19th, 1968. So that happened obviously before this document was circulated and before that letter was created. And then on the on the um, next page, you have a picture of Walt and Robert Sarnoff, who was the Walt Disney of RCA, created NBC, you know, pretty much one of the preeminent figures in media, I would say equivalent to Walt Disney in many ways, although his spirit probably doesn't live on nearly as much as Disney's does, but at his, at the, at the era, um, was a, a very, you know, very big deal. And then they talk about the goals. So the goals of this for Walt Disney World, there's four of them. It's to enhance guest satisfaction. It's to maximize facilities use, u- utilization, to minimize cost of operations, and to provide safety commensurate with technology. That's what this communication system was designed to do. And they talk a lot about this throughout the, the presentation. And the presentation is not dry. The reason it's fun to talk about on this show like this, it's not a technical guide. It is a walkthrough of how this could be used practically. And we'll see how the Carousel of Progress, I would say, inspired the way this document is laid out. We'll get to that in a moment. But this is not a dry document. It's very visual. If you look at it on the site, it's filled with graphics. And it's really what attracted me and why it's my favorite document because it's something that was made uh, in the spirit of Disney, but really for a very specific business purpose. So they open up with the conclusions, of which there are six, um, that Walt Disney World needs um, uh, something like this to operate successfully, that an advanced communication system is vital to the goals, that this system will result in more efficiency and more economic operations, that the system won't just reduce costs, but contribute in a positive way to profits. It will serve as a prototype for Epcot's information communication system requirements, and that RCA can implement it in time. That's one of the things you have to remember. This is 1968, 69 really, and this is going to open in October 71, and they know that. So this, you know, if you have any setbacks here, you're going to be uh, have a park that's going to open and everything that communication revolves around is going to not work. So they have about a year and three quarters to make this work with technology that to me seems like was maybe very novel at the time. So there's there's a clock ticking and I think they need to get Disney to make a decision whether or not to do that. What blows me away about this, it's that thing that we've talked about several times in the early days, how they really went above and beyond when it came to trying to come up with new systems. They weren't just happy like, oh, we need a telephone. And they, like, no, they, tr- I mean, almost ridiculously, it seems, in 1968 decided we need to integrate telephones, computers, fires, like all of this stuff. It's, it seems so advanced. Like there were so many things that Disney was doing with their partners that was so incredibly innovative and groundbreaking at the time. And this is yet just another example of that. It's, it is mind-boggling. It is very ambitious. And again, if you think about the timeline, it's less than two years out and they haven't even decided necessarily to do this yet. And uh, imagine trying to do that today. You know how many things can go wrong nowadays. To try to do this in, in this era seems almost too good to be true. And I, I think... Ultimately, I'm not, we're not sure how much of this actually happened, but 
um, it seems like a really big thing to tackle for a park that already was, you know, trying to accomplish so much. The recommendations from RCA, of course, are that uh, Disney elect to do this project. Um, They do say Disney, they want Disney to reach an early decision as to the degree to which the system will be implemented because uh, RCA needs to be ready to provide as much help as they can. They want to have a joint team to be able to final all the contracts and that there is a office on on site staffed by RCA and Disney to keep it running smoothly. And that's the recommendations page, which is on page nine of the document. Now, Ted, do we do we get into anything about what's in it for RCA? Uh, the document, and I think smartly does it. Okay. That's obviously a good a good tool of uh, pitching a business. You want to tell the person you're buying it from why they need it. I think we know. That if RCA, who as Howe uh, taught me in our pre-interview, uh, that RCA went out of the computer business, if RCA was really successful with this and stayed in the computer business, this would have been an entree to try to, try to create other systems for many other corporations, other theme sure, parks, sure. anybody else. They would have shown themselves as the, the leader in communication systems. So that's what they got out of it. But they do not say that in this because that doesn't tell Disney why Disney needs it. I think they just wanted to have World Key all over the place. <laughs> uh, so they actually named the system. So they call it Webcom. I love that name. And there's, it's so, it's yes, so epcot you know? It, it is so, and that, again, this is why I love this document so much, because they knew Disney. I mean, RCA, uh, maybe Arthur Anderson helped them. They knew how to package a document that would speak to the Disney people. If Walt was alive, I have to imagine he would have loved this document because it is so embodies every, you know, we're four years, three years off the World's Fair. So RCA was easily able to see what Disney was about in terms of presenting things. I mean, this was RCA presenting to Disney what Disney was presenting to the world three years ago. So they really knew how to talk. So they, they gave a name to it called Webcom the Walter E. Disney Communication-Oriented Monitoring and Management System. That's a lot. Right? It's a lot, but it's great. I mean, you get WED in there. WED Imagineering existed. You get COM in there. I mean, obviously, they came up with WEDCOM and then backed into it, I would have to imagine. But, but they're playing off of the perfect. word, I mean, Epcot, you know, everything in Epcot became, I mean, that alone is an acronym. So it's like, if this is yes. still in their vision at this point, you know, Epcot isn't dead. Well, kind of is. No. But well, it's on the right. cover. I mean, Ep- Progress City is essentially right. Epcot, so it's on the cover. Um, so yeah, so they they and you know, I almost wish there was something else Wedcom that existed today. Uh, you have Wedway, so I guess you know Wedway people movers, so it kind of works. And they call this a new dimension in information communication systems. So the first thing they do is they show uh, how will the proposed system benefit a typical guest. That's the first selling point. I love point, this which part. Is, this is it is it's, genius. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah. It is really, it's because it's not only, it's not just saying, here, Disney, here's why you want it. It's why your guest wants it. And we know that Disney was so focused on the happiness of their guests. So to talk about what's most important to Disney, to sell something without even saying I'm selling this to you, is just really getting inside the Disney mind. And I think it also shows that the guest didn't need to know that it was there to reap the benefits. Exactly. And that they do talk yeah. a lot about that. In fact, the first sentence talks about that. So what they also did brilliantly is they use the carousel progress model, I'm going to say, to talk about what a family, who they actually name the family, will experience. They talk about a mother and a father and two kids. 
and they sell the first page right before, or the page that talks about uh, the guest right before they get into it. It says, let's find out by following George Kellogg. So they pick a name. <laughs> Just thumb through the yellow family. pages there and find one. Exactly. <laughs> that sounds good. I imagine there must be George Kellogg, maybe even listening today. And let's find out by following George Kellogg and his family on their first visit to Disney World. And the picture, by so, the way, on the next, it's just it's yes. this scribble-scrabble, not-finished animation, you know, like um, storyboard. It's a storyboard. It's a storyboard. And, and the yeah. mother needs, boy, she's slouching in that chair. She needs yes. to yes. fix her posture. I agree. Yeah, all of these come. pictures are television commercial storyboards they, they yeah. had to have been done by someone that did storyboards to tell the commercial which totally makes sense as something that our somebody at rca would have access to that so the first picture is the let's call it you know, mother and father the kellogg's carousel progress the <laughs> yeah. kellogg's they're sitting in a travel office it looks like and there's a man holding up brochures behind him is a is a picture of walt disney world with the castle very crude but they're sitting there, I guess, listening to him, it sounds like. And they talk about the first step in the process being the arrangements. I'm going to read part of this and summarize part of it. But it says that George Kellogg and his family from Wilmington, Delaware, are eagerly looking forward to their first visit to Walt Disney World. Having read the brochures on Walt Disney World, Mr. Kellogg is aware of its popularity, knows wants to make reservations. So at the travel agency where we see them, a direct call is placed to the Walt Disney World Reservation Center. And here's what to what Todd just said. Although George is unaware of it, this is his first contact with WEDCOM. At the Reservation Center, the computer, and computer here is all capitalized. Um, <laughs> it is. Because I, yeah, I guess that's kind of like computers were a big deal at this point. Computer. Is, now, it says the computer is interrogated, which is a, such an interesting <laughs> verb. The computer is interrogated by the clerk for room availability at the Contemporary Hotel, which is, so it's, we're already calling, you know, already calling out the Contemporary, which was uh, known, but this but is But I, I guess you could say that's, that's what people do today. I want my, I want my fast pass. I'm interrogating the computer over and yes, over again. Yes, but I've never thought about, you know, it, it, outside of Isaac, Isaac Asimov type yeah. stuff or the yeah. Borg, you're interrogating a, a computer. I'm trying to think we, always, uh, we use all these other words now that are so much softer, like query. Yes. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yes, yes. So a few days later, George receives written confirmation that his family of five, I, I guess there's three kids, not, not two kids, has confirmed reservations at the Contemporary. And then it says that Wedcom silently updates its files. I love the fact that they say silently. <laughs> not, not, I guess computers would think of noisy pieces of equipment, but Wedcom silently updates its files to protect these, to protect these confirmed reservations. I've, I have These seen, words are so interesting. I've seen movies from the 1960s, and if there's one thing I know, computers go... Exactly. So that they would do this silently, and when they pronounce things, so... The silence... The deep... The deep... The whopper from War Games. Or, you know, the other computer computer people really knew at this time was on star trek which talked to you mm. so there's also that computer true at the same time pertinent information concerning the visit of jordan's family is fed into the guest information file which will build a guest profile which is what exists That's today so that is our first yep. thing that was predicted uh, 1968 and it only took and four years and that kills me that they are thinking about crm in 1968 yes. yeah and this get, this document gets into that uh, to to more degree than this, and it says that this profile will help Walt Disney World progressively increase its ability to serve the needs of the Kellogg family and the thousands of others who will be guests over the years. That's exactly what you just said, the CRM. 
Um, and again, George is not aware of it, but his reservation is fed into the computer's attendance prediction model, which triggers a whole series of actions designed to make the visit a more memorable one. But we're getting ahead of our story. <laughs> so now we have more benefits, and we have now pictures of, uh, of someone arriving at the hotel, apparently. And you can see a computer hidden from the guest, but in the uh, staff member's, I guess, little cubicle where you drive up to the hotel as a computer. And then you see a, a maid using a television. She's touching a television screen. What's she so doing it's touch there? Screen. I think she's entering her location and the work that she's done because later the document talks about how this system needs to know where every maid is and every room that's been cleaned at every time. I think she's touching a screen on what this yeah, person drew as a set, uh, as a computer screen to tell the computer, I've cleaned this room. And again, everybody's got serious posture problems. Yeah, this, yes. This maid's been I working agree. all day, Todd. <laughs> um, so now we're at the arrival. So it's months later, and George and the family are just arriving at Walt Disney World. And at the entrance center, uh, an attendant welcomes George. That's the person we saw in the picture earlier. And he verifies the family reservations. And the reservation list that this person has has been prepared by the computer. So George now has had his second contact with Wedcom. Again, it doesn't say this, but he doesn't know it. So he's given direction to the contemporary, and in a few minutes, the family's registered and comfortably situated in their room. Now, I think we know that's a bit of a fantasy mm-hmm. at Disney World. You are not comfortably seated in room minutes after arriving. Well, if you uh, get your room number beamed to your app now, you just walk right in. As long as your flight's your delayed, you're, it's, it's your, you go yeah. right in. Uh, so the desk clerk notifies the reservation center that the family has arrived and the computer's files are immediately updated by a video data terminal. So they use this term VDT in this document. And actually, I think if we have time at the end of the document, I have a document uh, from 1971 that's the actual hotel methods and procedures for Walt Disney World, what actually happened. And we have a lot of the procedures for when people arrive. Mm-hmm. And they do mention VDT in that document. So there is real use of video data terminals that happened in reality at Disney World. I don't think it was elaborate as this document hoped, but they're actually in use. So when the family enters the room, George's wife, Julie, so now, now the, woman has a main, uh, the woman has a name, it's not just Mrs. Kellogg, she's impressed with the room's neatness, but she doesn't <laughs> know that the room status maid locator system, that's what it's called, room status maid locator system, that's what that maid was touching before, assured that the room would be clean and unoccupied at the time of their arrival. Young Debbie, who's 11, wastes no time discovering the color TV, oh, which has more channels caps. than... Color television. All caps. Yes, it has more channels than she's ever seen on a TV set. And she says, look, Dad, this channel tells us about what's happening at the park tonight. When can we go? And then nine-year-old Curtis goes to the AM-FM radio, also in caps, which I think probably a little bit unnecessary. Radio wasn't too novel. And Debbie yells, turn that down. Now, I, I think it's a little disconcerting that the mother's already yelling at <laughs> we the We haven't even gotten to daughter. the parks, kids. I know, we haven't got the park yet. She's been in the car so, all day. Sounds pretty normal She's, with our family. Yeah, yeah. But, but the vision of Dizzy is not supposed to have any of this yelling going <laughs> that's on. True, so that's I, true. I guess they're bringing a little real world into it. Curtis objects because he's found a special channel, which now sounds like little Hal Bowers. It's playing the music <laughs> from the Disney movie that we saw last week. Pick up week. the VCR. That sounds like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but of course, the special TV and radio programming are only part of Wedcom. 
uh, but this isn't important, important to the kids, just the results. So again, a lot of talk about how this is designed to all work behind the scenes and that the guests will never really know they're interacting with this So system. Todd, when did they start the special television channels in the hotels? Do you know? You know, I mean, I was there in 80 and it was running. So I, 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 I want to say it was probably like around 76, 77, somewhere. Okay. In there. I can't remember if we heard that it was earlier than that, but I, I think I did hear that there was actually ways that you could check out of your hotel room on the TV, even very early when they opened. Uh, this part where she's flipping through the channels and she noticed there's a channel that shows surveillance cameras of the play yard. Yes, yes, we're getting to that. What, what, what's, I'm trying to, you know, this, I'm going back to the 60s. I feel like you could send your kids anywhere and you didn't care back then. Is this more for the parents to watch the kids play or is this was Debbie hacking into a channel she wasn't supposed no, to see? I I think it was for the I think it was for the parents to keep surveillance keep an eye on the kids. Yeah. I think they actually get to that maybe in um in the next page they address it a little bit. It is weird. It's the it's the first thing I noticed that stood out to me as just a little big a little big brother y yeah, like mother the rest agrees, of it had but felt. she also appreciates the serious purpose of this special channel. Well, if yeah, you remember so. even in the RCA Home of Future Living there was in the baby's room a camera trained on the crib so that the mother could like watch the child remotely in there so i guess since rca sold you know television cameras you know live live camera feeds is something that they could tout as you know part of their uh part of their offering here you can watch other people's kids which is a little that's the yeah that's yeah did anything like this exist ever in the world of disney like a camera on the pool or a camera on like a pl- like a playground and you could see it on the TV? Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. To, uh, I don't I don't believe that was the case for the rooms cuz even, you know, if I think back to the the even the early security systems, you know, like they didn't have cameras in very many of the attractions on mm-hmm. opening day cuz this 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 technology was very expensive at that time. Like a like a closed circuit television was you know, I don't know what the figure is, but I'm sure it was a lot. Well, everything had like one or two wires coming from it. It was, and you know, had to go just to the TV. I mean, it was like, I don't know. It seems kind of crazy. It, it would have been a very, very complicated system to pull off. I think using 1960s technology. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't think, you know, pirates got cameras probably first. Uh, you know, the haunted mansion still doesn't have cameras, even though the one in Anaheim does. So, there were very few of that kind of live circuit camera. RCA, you know, Space Mountain had them because they needed to monitor the uh, the tracks, but that wasn't until, you know, 75. So there were quite a few in Space Mountain and on the Wedway, but now that, that stuff cost a fortune. And as we know, probably a, another reason a lot of this stuff didn't happen is that, you know, Disney was on a budget. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to point out here too is that you know, I, I'm working with a lot of, with, with the company I'm with about guest, well, in this case, it's guest satisfaction, but it's really client satisfaction, right? And we outline the same things, the arrival, which is the onboarding of a client. So this is no different than any large scale looking at what your clients are, what they want, what is in it for them. Uh, rather than a client, the client is the guest. So it's it's really interesting that they took a perfect approach to driving they this. Did. 
Yeah, and they're not in this business. They're not in the they don't touch their guests really one-on-one -on -one RCA. They, they didn't at the time. They never have. You know, they either had a broadcast network or they sold TVs to third parties, so they didn't really have experience sure. dealing with customers one-on-one. -on -one. So are we, how are you asking a question? Oh, moving on? I, Todd, do you, do you remember? I had heard stories that they had a system right away that you could, like, check out of your hotel room on the TV back in the early 70s. Do you recall hearing that? I do not. Okay. Yeah, I do not. We were in the treehouse so in 80, and I know we had to go physically go check out. But oh, okay. But we had a bill to pay. Who knows? Maybe they found out that they had a bill to pay on the TV. I don't know what my parents did. <laughs> so after the, the kids use the TV, the document talks about how Wedcom has been performing other tasks aimed at taking care of the family's needs. The fact about uh, the uh, where they were staying was logged into the computer <coughs> via the attendance prediction model we heard before. And because they've now checked in and the computer knows it, the inventory, inventory control system and computerized personnel scheduling system have helped Disney management make sure that adequate staff is on hand, that food supplies have been provided, and that the stores are well stocked with popular items of merchandise. Now, I want to believe today that when I check into a hotel, the computer is updating that and, and doing these things. I don't really believe that's happening. Maybe it is. It feels like it's happening one-on-one -on -one here, like it's very direct. Um, it sounds too good to be true, but uh, that is what they're proposing. And Debbie now finds that there's another special channel on TV, and it's a channel allotted to surveillance, in all caps, of the hotel's fence-in-play yard. She calls out, look, Mom, that's the play yard we saw on the way in. If we go down there, we'll be on TV. <laughs> Mother agrees, but she also appreciates the serious purpose of the special channel, which I guess is to monitor your kids, but you can monitor other people's okay, kids. Okay, we're, we're getting creepy. into a level of creepiness now. <laughs> this is yeah. Big Brother, yes. First of all, I don't. I have a feeling these cameras are too grainy to actually recognize any particular child, but this <laughs> is this is the first creepiness Big Brother that we found in the deck, deck in the document. There's not a lot more of it, but this does stand out as something like, all right, I think, RCA, you've taken one step too far. <laughs> you don't need this. Uh, so now that's... That's the hotel. So now we're moving on to the visit. There's a lot of stuff in the visit. I'm not going to cover everything, and I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to try to summarize a bit. Uh, but on the nature of surveillance cameras, when George and his family, who are among the first to arrive at the park, little George, so now it's our third kid, we have Debbie, Curtis, and little George, is quick to spot one of the TV surveillance cameras. Uh, and that's pointed at the park, at the parking area, so that the attendants can make sure that cars and property are safe. Now that sounds like a good use of video. I thought you were saying it was going to be pointed at the park again. Another camera pointed. No, at the no. Park. These at least is part is a, is at the parking lot, and that makes sense. <laughs> now, JT, so, I will tell you, it is my understanding, and based on personal observation, there are cameras all over the parks, pointed especially at like places where like public can like can congest. So. My feeling is there are there are a lot of like security safety style cameras all over the exterior of the parks in the common areas. So I'm sure. Well, especially uh, post 9-11. I mean, that's that's uh, that changed everything. Yeah. I'm sure there's just people watching it now. Like that makes sense. Yes. Um, so now George is at the ticket counter and he uses this is I found interesting. 
As a preferred guest, he uses his Walt Disney World credit card to purchase tickets. Now, I don't know where he got this card because <laughs> he just got to the Travel Center like a few months ago and bought some tickets uh, for this new opening park. I don't know when he got a Walt Disney World credit card. But in the world of Wedcom, he has a Walt Disney World credit card. And the transaction will be shortly entered into Wedcom's computer system and George will be automatically billed. So they're now already bringing in finances into this as well and uh, you know, a way of bringing people really indebted to using Disney stuff all the time. This, this is fascinating because I wonder when room charges actually started because we know credit cards were kind of like a late invention. Like the Diners Club was very, uh, this is why I wish Brian was here because I, he, I know he knows all the credit cards. Like the Diners Club was like groundbreaking when that happened, I think in the, can't remember if that was in the 50s or the 60s. So I don't know when credit cards started to become kind of prevalent i think early 60s okay. uh if you watch fargo on fx this season they there's a whole episode that's about diners club coming in to uh to use in like early 60s i think it's about early 60s. so this would have been very progressive at the time yeah. yes yes and not and 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 branded like this it's saying you know like apple just introduced a credit card a year ago this is walt disney now becoming a, a, a credit loaning company, which like I don't think was ever in scope. It isn't in scope today. Because uh, they don't say it's a branded credit card. They're essentially saying it's their yeah. credit card. So you were talking about uh, guest count, uh, turnstile counters before. So now the computer is knowing when the family is going through the turnstile counter and that the computer is counting park attendance. And as they see park attendance either becoming faster or slower than predicted, the system is starting to use that information to tell other people, uh, supervisors throughout the park, whether or not they need extra help or not. That's what the magic band is doing behind the scenes. Yes. So uh, first thing that they do is go to Haunted Mansion. And inside the Haunted Mansion, there's a dark attraction television monitoring system. And it's silently adding another safety factor for George and his family, which they don't get into. But how you were saying Haunted Mansion does it, it not did have not have cameras. The one in Orlando, the one in Disneyland, I, I understand does, but I don't know when they're installed. But in in Orlando, there were never television cameras in there. Uh, so the next thing is interesting. Um, after Haunted Mansion, they go to Space Mountain. So now Space Mountain opened in seventy five was an RCA sponsored attraction, but did they know Space Mountain was going to come this early? I, I thought they, they were. So Walt had some sketches that he worked with with John Hench potentially for it to be in Disneyland, uh, originally called Space Venture, and then I think they drew it up. The early versions that we see in the Walt Disney World maps, where it's kind of like the giant circus tent looking things with the odd angles. Apparently they took that design and they just kind of plopped it down in the Walt Disney world version. Cause they, um, they had a design that I think to fit the, the actual infrastructure of Disneyland, but they had the design work done. So they picked it up and threw it into the early 1960s Orlando versions. Um, but originally RCA wasn't going to sponsor Space Mountain. So it is it, it was an attraction that they wanted to have there. But um, there's a very sort of convoluted story of how RCA ended up sponsoring Space Mountain. So it's it's not Space Mountain as we think of it today. It's that version where the cars go on the outside of the attraction as well as on the inside of the attraction, which was 
even more Matterhorny than the Matterhorny version of that sounded wrong. The Matterhorny version of Space Mountain <laughs> that we have Matterhorny. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is probably a coincidence. I then, think so. Yeah. RC. Yeah. So what's interesting here is the family arrives at Space Mountain and there's a long line, and the computer knows there's a long line, so they send over a live crew of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs to entertain the people in the line because the computer knew that there's a lot of people waiting in line and this way they can be entertained and not feel like they've been waiting in a long line. I don't think that happens today. Do, do, I don't think cast members, or maybe I'm wrong, come and entertain people in line when they know there's a long line. I don't line, think it's that, for entertainment purposes. I think it's also crowd draw. You know, if, pe- if there's too many people over here, they can send a character over to that spot to, you know, suck people in one direction i mean i wouldn't doubt it if they're using it i mean jesus would rfid everywhere right yeah i think they do try to schedule some like uh of the smaller live entertainment groups like bands and things to work in that function so but that's probably not based on instantaneous feedback that's i, that's I think it's based on like yeah. oh we know as a trend over time it's like although the who knows i mean they may be like hey send the send the saxophone quintet out onto main street because main street's really busy right now and like if it's not busy on main street maybe they dress them up and like put them in Frontierland and have them play different kinds of music it it's possible but if like if pandora's a four-hour wait like they should be having live people there all the time yes i've never model which they don't i've never seen that and i waited in a four-hour line for that and (laughs) there was nothing going on i saw that big guy in the cage walk by the you know that yeah so the document says that Space out Space Mountain turns to be a fantastic experience because, but it might not, sorry, not because, it might not have been, but the computer detected a quote-unquote faulty pump. I don't know if Space Mountain has pumps, that maybe they do, or this version of it. The previous evening, and the computer alerted the proper personnel, and they went and fixed it, and if that hadn't happened, the bride might not have worked, and there may not have been anyone in Space Mountain. And... Not only did they fix it, the computerized inventory control system helped to make sure that the spare parts were in stock so that they could fix That's it. That's amazing. So this computer is doing everything. Uh, so now everyone's going to go eat, and um, they see on a TV monitor somewhere in the park that there's a special pricing for a ride for their steamboat ride. So they go to the steamboat. So now they have the computer basic, I, and I guess at this point there was obviously not one ticket serves all um is that what happened in 71 did people i don't remember when park opened did you buy like tickets for each ride or yeah you had ticket books with so many a so many b so many c so many d's yep uh so now uh, george notices the hall of presidents as they're on their way to the steamboat ride and they talk about how the uh wedcom will help make sure that the hall of presidents is working function is working properly uh, so later in the day, um, everyone wants to go back to the hotel, and on their way, they uh, stop by the stores, and that the stores are now well-stocked because Webcom has been predicting how many people will be in the park and what the sales will be over time, and that the prediction model makes sure everything is ordered accurately and that there's a merchandise needs are met. And it says, as a matter of fact, computer assistance has helped the buyer to maintain a 97% in-stock batting average and a high turnover rate. So they're saying that that uh, merchandise sales will be through the roof because the system will keep on top of everything that's needed in the park. 
so you know they're really hitting all the different areas of how Disney can make money here. They're doing it subtly and they're doing it through the experience of a guest, but uh, it's clear that they're you know they're hitting on everything that makes money for them, making sure that each guest is spending as much as they can. And the only way they can spend that money is everything's working properly, and that's what this wet consult to be doing. What's funny is this document should be posted in a, in a summary, this page 23 on the internet, because everybody complains it's all about money now, and Disney's trying to milk every dollar out of us. And you could see, even in 1968, they're trying to do the same thing. I mean, it is a business. It's they're a business. Trying to make yes. money. Yep. Uh, so the next section talks about how George and Julie and the family are now leaving the park. Uh, there's a little bit of a of a silly thing here where they, you know, the family notes how everyone seems to know their job perfectly. And both parents had heard of Walt Disney World's high quality personnel screening, testing and advanced training program. And on a wonderful <laughs> world of color TV program that they had seen various scenes of Walt Disney World in advance of the opening. Is that true? Did the Walt Disney World TV show talk about how well trained everybody is? I don't remember anything. In, I mean... Other than the 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 frou frou you know shows we've seen like you know the I the opening I, videos I and... don't recall any episodes leading up to the opening like they did with Disneyland where Walt would say like oh hey we're working on this and here's an update I I think they didn't have any shows about Walt Disney World until boom Walt Disney World was open. So this goes so far as to say that they saw on the show how closed circuit television in all cats was used to train thousands of employees in a remarkably short time period. Now this feels like a bit of puffery that RCA is a little bit of scrambling to fit every little bit of thing they think they need to sell this through. Yeah. Well, they also looked at how little time they had till opening. They're probably like, hey, they might like this one. (laughs) Yeah, true. That is a question. How are you going to train all of these people? The answer, Dick Nunes is going to yell at them. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> on his from his water right. feet. Mm-hmm. So what they're saying is that they were going to um, do Zoom is what they were doing. Yeah, that's right. They are. They are in a way well, predicting that. Well, so I remember when I worked for a fast food restaurant in the '80s, our training system was essentially like a slide, one of these little machines with like a screen with a slide projector in it with the cassette tape that would advance the. I mean, that was kind of an affordable way to visually train people. Um, you know, prior to video cassettes and everything else. So, I mean, assumably, because they, they said it was closed circuit, it's like maybe they would have TVs set up on different places on the property so you could come into a room and get trained by a, you know, by a live trainer, but broadcast it rather than have everybody, you know. Or just at, at 9 a.m. we're playing the, uh, you know, the ethics VHS or the, right. the reel-to-reel or whatever they had back then, you know, not re-VHS, but get ready. So now... Now the Kelloggs have left the park and they go back to the hotel room and George yells. I don't know why it says yells. It says yells. I guess they think kids He's just yell. He's excited. Uh, Mom, the light is blinking. And then on the communications console, in all caps, that's what's in the room, which I think is a telephone, a red light, <laughs> a red light, a red light, it doesn't blink. It winks. It's winking. It's that's winking. a slow, so, subtle blink. It's, you know. So they check with the desk and they have two messages. First, grandmother, very carousel progress, has called and reported that all is well at home. And another message, and this is this is weird to me, the way this 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 falls out, has been logged requesting that Kellogg's contact the quote or not quote caps 
system communication center about a lost object. Now we have a little drama on the vacation. Yeah, so Julie realizes that she lost her purse. Jeez. I don't know how you realize you've lost your purse. Because the at, system communication at, at, center notified no. them. Yeah, but how does she, I guess, how does this, how does this, did this lady not realize her purse was lost till she they're got to the room? They're having so I guess much that's fun, possible. Ted. That's, that's true, yes. They're on that's, vacation, that's like, point. wait, what could we have possibly lost? My purse! Now, the dialogue here is weird to me. So they have dialogue. It says, George, exclamation point. I'm sure I had it when we bought your lighter. Okay. So now everyone's still smoking because it's 1968. That would never be. That would never be. Can you imagine that being used in a document today? I had it when we bought your lighter. That would never happen. Uh, George responds with a groan. Great. We were only at five places after that. But let me call the desk and see what I can do. Now, this makes no sense to me because... The communication center has called them to tell them they've lost something. So why does George think he has to go find it? Because clearly someone's already found it. George is, I, George so, is being dad. He's being the man in the, the family in the 60s here. He's like, great. Let me figure this out now for you, Julie. So the desk clerk immediately contacts, I guess George calls the desk clerk. He contacts the systems communication center where a radio call, in caps, is made to the area supervisor of Main Street and the security office in that locale. Earlier, an observant clerk had set the purse aside at the postcard stand and had notified the security office, which in turn had notified the system communication center. There, a check made on hotel registration had developed into the call to the Kellogg's at the hotel. <laughs> so all this is saying is some clerk found a purse, found the Julie's name in it, and they called the hotel. There's a lot to and, go wrong with all this here. I don't know why they had to spell it out like that. Well, they're making it is, where George normally would be TO'd and annoyed because now they got to go backtrack, search everything. Well, the system communication center basically saved the day and it didn't ruin the vacation. But they spelled it out in such a yes. convoluted way. Yeah. A messenger is dispatched to pick up the purse and take it to the Kellogg's room at the hotel. By the way, I don't know. Has any Have either of you ever lost something? Does, does, does Disney... Do that? Do they find no? We, we lost hotel? something. I had a call a number, and they never. Yeah, it's not like I lost something at like a restaurant, like a like a mug I wanted to you know get back, and then like hey, I just want to call the restaurant. I'll bet you it's sitting in the back. You know, let me just call them. Now nah, they direct you to like a lost yeah. and found central hub. What I'm? And did you have to go get it? I, did I didn't even after that. It, it just I lost interest. It was like eight dollars. Oh, I, I go, see. it's not even oh. worth it. Oh. I see a missed okay. opportunity here. They really could have bought an Amex, and she had uh, traveler's checks. And the thieves <laughs> did not take the traveler's checks because she... that was the eighties. This is too <laughs> <Yeah>. soon. <laughs> no, I think the tra- oh no, Brian's not here. He would tell us when traveler checks started. So. Yeah, like I feel like that was like an eighties ad. Well, it was it, like it definitely was. Thing. Yeah. Lost of the my my understanding is if you go to Lost and Found, you say like, "Hey, I lost this," and then they just pull out a box and start rifling through stuff. <laughs> unless maybe your purse, unless a T-shirt. Here's a thousand. Let's yeah, take a look. Well, here's some sunglasses. Here's a box of sunglasses. <laughs> here's a box of lens caps. <laughs> I lost. Here's my a box of iPhones. Cord. <laughs> yeah, you know maybe if you have your ID, you know, like if you have your Walt Disney World credit card with your name on it in your purse, it's like then they probably know that it's you, but. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, JT, so, American Express Traveler's Check started in 1891. Wow. Oh, get out of here. So look at that. He, he, he transposed his numbers. Not 1981. <laughs> he meant 1891. 1891—that's pretty amazing. Well, what was the point? They barely had, like, you know, I mean, they had cash. You didn't want to carry silver and gold coins that weighed 
400 tons with you. You know how the cowboy, you'd get robbed by uh, bandits. <laughs> hey, Wells Fargo, right? All I got in the stagecoach is traveler's chest. Oh, damn get it. We pulled here. up with this whole train and all they have are traveler's We have the wrong <laughs> stagecoach. Come on. <laughs> So we're on page 23 of the 70-page document. And yeah, we need the, to move along. The page, <laughs> yes, the page ends saying, the, uh, Thus ends the first wonderful day of the Kellogg's family visit to Walt Disney World, a visit enhanced by WebCom, the 21st century information communication system of Walt Disney World. So the next 10, 20 pages, which we'll go through quickly, discuss all... Now they get into the, the real benefits to Disney. They go through benefits for each of the different areas of what runs Walt Disney World. They go through the benefits for the operations of Disney World and how it enhances guest satisfaction and it minimizes cost of operations. And there's a long list of bullets on how it's going to do that. It's going to provide safety, security, air and water, water pollution control, as well as keeping things running smoothly. Then it goes into benefits for finance. And it talks about how the inventory control system and the guest statistics and the inquiry and response systems and keeping land resources and utilities going are all going to help the financial workings of Walt Disney World be better. There's benefits for marketing, again, with guest satisfaction, computerized guest profiles and preferences, a large and ready manipulable database. The computer can accomplish analysis far beyond what one can do manually. Accurate computer predictions of available capacity can use to target group sales promotions and can optimize the most profitable type of group sales through computer computer simulation. So they are talking, you know, what is still what is obviously in use very much today. And then TV advertising, how the all the TV sets on the park can be utilized to market upsell people while in the park. They go into benefits for personnel and training through all the closed caption, not closed captioning, closed circuit television that we we're talking about and how people can be uh, trained uh, very easily. They said they have 4,000 plus people to train by opening day and that the, um, the closed circuit television will be a big, a big uh, uh, help in making sure that hits the timing. This is, uh, I, sorry, I see this one thing here. Yeah. It's interesting. It says they, uh, they really want to push the live streaming of shows parades musicals special groups uh you know from the best vantage point and they can videotape them they can show them on the rooms i think that's that's i mean we're we're in that age now they would show the fireworks during covid you know the live stream and that and whatever else but it's kind of interesting they're pushing that this this far back yes yeah they're definitely very visionary and that of course is their core business is video and television or one of their core businesses so that they knew a lot about they talk about benefits for entertainment, and that's what you said. TV, they call it monitoring of live shows, not streaming. It'd be fascinating if they use the word streaming. Um, videotape recordings, um, and that these could be reviewed by Disney executives, entertainment directors in California. So, you know, these all this footage could be passed back and forth. I don't exactly know how they'd get it, maybe by Federal Express, which I don't think existed yet. Benefits for engineering. So they'd have monitoring and control of all the equipment and see when things fail. They'd be able to test things very easily, monitor performance information, and provide statistical analysis from all the failure data so they can get ahead of anything breaking down. Benefits for construction. The construction program will have been underway for an extended period of time ahead of WEDCOM implementation, and provisions will be made for an orderly phase-over of California-based computer activities and transition from manual computers. So RCA saw this 
being implemented in Anaheim, I think, as well as Florida, which is, again, as you asked earlier, what's for the benefit RCA? Imagine if they could do both parks and then whatever else came behind that. Benefits for maintenance, all sorts of bullets about how uh, maintenance could be improved, no more downtime, quality of the rides, things don't break down, things are uh, gotten ahead of so that guests aren't waiting and you have everything running uh, very smoothly. And then they talk about that, and this is a whole page is dedicated to these words, WEDCOM will have an operational nerve center where human abilities are enhanced through electronics, the system communication center, which is something it mentioned <laughs> Like, ah, oh, cyborgs! <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> so they have a, a very crude diagrams of what this building looks like, which is essentially a, a big, a big old school computer console with one guy sitting at it and then like a conference room. Yes, right. It does look actually a little bit like the back gate mm-hmm. computers. Um, and then a conference room with people standing around looking at oh, it's it. It's backstage like magic, really, when you think about it. It is, yeah. And I, I would I would guess that maybe eventually they would showcase this to the, maybe showcase this to the, to the guests. Color-coded construction boards on a pull-out overhead track. So, like, you know, imagine the college boards that pull down and go sideways. They've got different ones coming out on a ceiling track. So they say that the Systems Communication Center will be the operational nerve center for the entire information communication system where information vital operation management is received and transmitted. So they imagine all this being housed in it looks to me like a very small building if you look at the scale of the people walking into it. Um, I don't believe that, but um, that's what they imagine, this all being on-site and all being managed. So now they say that you've seen the many benefits of WebCom for guests and management. Now let's see how the System Communication Center fits into the total system. So this gets very, well, not very technical in general, but for this document, it gets quite technical with flow charts and starting to, there's like, on page 41 of this, it's a fascinating uh, uh, they have icons for all the different actual pieces of equipment, which some of them don't look very different from one another. So it's like a, just about a bunch of pictures of, of old school televisions and reel-to-reel computers. Um, but then they talk about a program management office, which again has a bunch of flow charts to show how everything worked together and how the different personnel will be used. And they have names for different people that they need to hire, including a secretary. Um, and they have a program management office functions, and they get into actually how it's all going to work. Then they have all the networking that's required, the television and wideband system. This is so Again, they don't get, so detailed at this point. It is this very is, detailed. I mean, beyond but, just the Kellogg family. Yes. No. Now we're getting into again. I imagine there's obviously far more detailed stuff that they, somebody sh- they showed what it could do. look like for the guest, and now we're getting into the let's get backstage yes. the the nuts and right. bolts of it here. Yes, and now they have to get into Show us how a little this bit works, more detail. Right. And it's still done at, I'd say, a fairly high level, but compared to what we just saw, it is far more detailed. They actually get a little bit into the costs. So they say that the technical proposal contains a cost summary for telephone service for both public and privately owned systems. The identified costs are a one-time installation cost of $39,150 and a monthly operating cost of $80,250. And that a comparison of net annual income per phone for two different size groups of telephone companies, uh, four companies with annual revenue of $500,000 a year and four companies with an annual revenue of a million dollars a year were compared. So they did all these comparisons to figure out how much this is all going to cost. I like this statement. Um, However, in the Epcot era, 
it's just great. And then they also yeah. go into RCA is not in the telephone equipment business, and it would be in the best interest of Disney if the telephone equipment were procured or leased directly from the equipment suppliers. <laughs> so this is a whole page dedicated to the telephone system, so it's a little bit something they actually haven't covered yet um, because they realize that that's a huge part of this, and that's right, they're not. that is not something they do, so you imagine AT&T or someone else would have to get involved. But this is the first time we've actually seen any figures for yeah. anything in this document. And ultimately, Disney did build their own telephone system. Yeah. They started their own company, that Vista Telephone. Um, oh, that's right, yeah. Because in Orlando, um, I, I believe the the Florida Telephone Company was the like predominant telephone company in the Orlando area at the time, which I, I don't think anyone... They eventually became GTE, I believe, or got absorbed by GTE. Um, but it was a completely separate, uh, out of the bell system company, uh, in the 1970s. Cause I remember going to visiting my sister who lived in Orlando and they had this weird Florida telephone company and they had different kinds of headsets than we had in, in upstate New York and all kinds of stuff. So, hmm. So we're now we're on page 53 and now we're at the computer system. And it says that the Disney computerized management information system called Impart. So now we have something besides WETCOM. We have IMPART, I-M-P-A-R-T, which is an integral element of WETCOM. It's uh, administratively and financially oriented. In WETCOM, operational applications are added. WETCOM's computer operations include vital operating functions for the theme park, hotel, and residential communities. So now they talk about how IMPART and WETCOM will work together and the different phases of how these things will be implemented over uh, pre-opening, post-opening, industrial park, which I know is something we've seen in certain documents, and then they get into Epcot. And this is the first time I think we've actually seen Epcot uh, kind of used as part of the phases in this document. It says Epcot will provide a revolutionary opportunity for full exploitation of the computer's ability to help make life convenient, pleasant, safe, and relatively free for many of today's routine tasks which fall into the category of drudgery. So here, obviously, Epcot is still a city. Uh, computer applications for Epcot are discussed in a later section of this management summary, which details the evolution of WETCOM. That's going to be the last thing we talk about, which is very interesting. I think this is interesting. They say, uh, we're talking about expand communications, and it's getting busier. It says to satisfy this requirement, it's planned to replace the 7035 processor with the 7045 <laughs> processor. Just saying, that's what they had in mind in 71 there. Yep. Yes. That's, uh, that is, I'd say, the most technical this thing gets. Uh, it gets very detailed in terms of operations management and process, but in terms of actual equipment, doesn't get more uh, I, detailed. I could that. be out of line thinking this or saying this, but like, how long did RCA really think all of this hardware was going to actually last? Like, before it was outdated and Disney was going to have to wipe it all out and start fresh with something? New. I would imagine RCA would think to try to stay with it and upgrade it over time, wouldn't you? Yeah, I, I think the thing that they probably didn't foresee was oh what is the law of like how quickly technology yeah that's that's Moore's law saying, right Moore's yeah. law. i don't Moore's think law, they yeah. predicted yeah. Moore's law and just how quickly things but if you think about it so so they were running i remember the this so, so the 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 system that was that would have run this was the rca system 70 which was compatible with what did i figure out the ibm i can't remember model 50 or something oh you 
it yeah, was something like but that. those those computers that were running Walt Disney World from the 1970s really kept working through most of the 80s Epcot got a brand new you know they got the latest stuff at Epcot but the stuff that was working at Walt and the Magic Kingdom really continued to work there until about the early 90s if I recall because I got to take a one of the like innovations and action tour and they were they had just decommissioned a lot of the original computer equipment and moved it over from like the big giant discs to EPROMs and more modern technology and they were still running some of the shows off of like the film loops and things so um it it actually lasted 20 years or so i think so this is like an unrelated thing there's if you ever heard of the car the mclaren f1 they always say to work on it you needed a laptop from the mid 90s like which it's you know they pull it out it looks like an old compact and that is there anything in disney that's still using like some old 80s or 70s computer (laughs) like it's still hanging on we're just gonna leave it so all i can tell you is the ladies at Worldcom? Yeah, at, uh, yeah. <laughs> so when I w- I worked for a company called I2 Technologies in 1990, uh, we were brought in by Arthur Anderson as a potential vendor for Walt Disney World to try to tie together their disparate computer systems because their reservations computer was separate from their ticketing computer was separate from their. <laughs> Like um, their airline stuff, because airlines was all done through Sabre, which was like a dumb terminal. Uh, And the reason we got selected, you know, as a potential vendor is we had some interconnecting stuff, some hardware that could take old mainframe computers and put them on Ethernet and get them talking to each other. So at, at least in the year 2000, like there were legacy systems still running and even in y2k i mean one of the hottest jobs during that time period were people who could program in COBOL because there were still old computers programmed in COBOL that were running legacy systems uh in in companies all over the world what are the one of the things that really cracks me up about this particular document is all all this stuff about attendance prediction and trying to like tell the executives like how many people they needed to work there like part of the proposal that I put together and presented to Meg Crofton when she was a VP at Disney was that very thing. Because besides tying this, these systems together, we were trying to tell them like, oh, what a, you know, our company also sold prediction engines. So you would be able to tabulate, you know, based on who is people could say like, oh, I'm going to visit on this date. And based on that, you could basically put together, you know, a preset touring plan and you could you could know how many people you needed to have working at at different areas, depending on how many people you had booked for hotels and what rides they wanted to go on, which is basically that genie system that they keep talking about that they're going yeah, to put that, out now. I mean, or or basic My Disney experience. Yeah. you could pull that up. So because when we got engaged in it in 1999, 2000, they were using My Disney experience. They they wanted a CRM system that could piggyback on top of all this interconnectedness. And that was what they were really interested. So they wanted to know like, Oh, you know, this family's favorite character is Minnie mouse. So if something goes wrong and we have an abundance of Minnie mouse plushes, like our make good 
could be a Minnie Mouse because we would know out of the three things that we could use, it's like that's something that they would really appreciate. And they they just wanted to do. But like this cracks me up because all the stuff that they were being very innovative with in 2000, like here's RCA pitching this in 1968. And like literally it took another 20 years, you know, fit between 15, and 20 years from even that 2000 date for this stuff to actually get implemented and start working. So this just blows my mind. Uh, so the, the final thing that it says in this specific system about, um, about Epcot is that, oh, and I lost a page. Um, in so much as Epcot is 10 years or more away, which is correct, of course, not, not in the form that they thought it would be, and the rate of new developments is increasing, it is likely that the programs actually implemented for Epcot may differ materially from what is anticipated today, which is what you guys are just talking about. It is essentially that future planning be periodically updated to assure that it properly recognized new trends and new developments. So RCA was ready to think about the future uh, when they were you know, recommending WEDCOM. Then they go into a whole section automatically, automatic monitoring control systems and how it would be able to make sure that things don't break down a lot um, and stay running properly. The section about automatic testing of different systems and things about uh, at Disney. They talk about the digital animation control system, DAX, mm. and other modern, other modern, modern complex electronic community systems to be small, installed at Walt Disney World are so critical to the operation that extended shutdown could not be tolerated. Now, it was DAX, I don't know, was DAX an RCA system, or are they talking about a Disney system? So The D DAX system, I mean, I've heard that many times, not just here, right? Yeah, so that is that is Disney's system. I'm not sure what hardware it runs on, but yeah, that is Disney's digital animation control system. That is when they replaced, so that's used to run the show control um, that was the the first time you know a lot of the audio animatronics in things at Disneyland ran on ran on a variety of systems everything from uh, tape or film with like audio tracks in the Tiki Room it was like uh, tape that would um, that would have different audio cues on it that would get transformed into electrical signals that would then make uh, solenoids go on and off in the Haunted Mansion they used like disc cam system so it was almost like a record that turned and there were grooves in it that would cause an arm to go up and down and when that arm moved up and down it would move the character in a certain way um there were some analog computer systems but really the, the first you know fully digital ones and zeros animation control system that was invented for walt disney world and everything was run on that instead of the weird combinations of things that they had done previously so that was a big so deal it sounds like they yeah, didn't have much to do with it they just said the dax and other modern complex electronic systems to be installed but it's smart that they at least reference something yeah yeah they decree so now on page 59 let's spend a little time talking about the hotel motel room oh, communications. I, love this page. I know i i know yeah i know also how is something that he really likes here so the first, they talk about the guest services proposed for the 1971 opening. So first they talk about the mural TV, not in caps, but in quotes. And it is proposed that RCA's mural TV color receivers be installed in guest rooms. RCA color television has proven its reliability and excellent performance in millions of homes. More of Walt Disney World's future guests own RCA color television than any other brand. 
which is a bold thing to say, <laughs> daily over half a million hotel guests view RC television throughout the U.S. Mural TV color receivers incorporate the experience gained in the home field combined with experience in the institutional field. How you know something. I did. I looked this up, and the, the Mural TV was a real tell. That was like the brand of television that they sold to institutions like hospitals and hotels. And they were made like industrial strength. So they were, you know, a little bit more stronger and resilient than normal televisions. They had special dials that you wouldn't find uh, at in your home versions. And there are people that have, uh, if you go to YouTube and search for RCA mural TVs, there are people that have restored some of them uh, back to life again and fixed up the tubes and have them working. That's so, so cool. Yeah. And they look like completely boring. Like they don't look high tech or futuristic. They look like a typical 1970s television. But it was Physical the stuff knobs. on the inside that counted, right? That it kept it going and that it, it, you didn't have to replace it. I love right. the comment of the motorless remote control. Oh, yeah. What does that mean? Okay. Well, so when I was, <laughs> did you have one of those, Todd? I didn't have one, but one of them I, I know of would actually, when you press the button, there oh, was the, some the, mechanical you're would, the physical well, channel would turn on the TV. Yes. No, no, no. Well, there was that, the motorized, and there was also somewhere you press the button on the remote, it would strike a tuning fork, and that tuning fork would have a it had a um, receiver on the TV that would then motorize and turn the channel for you. Yeah, so. I even I think my the first TV that I got for my bedroom, which was probably 1984, 1985, was probably hand me down for my parents because they got a nicer one. It had a remote, and you would push like the channel up down button. It still had the tr turning knob on it, but there was a motor behind that knob, so you would hit the channel turning thing, and would the motor would turn behind the knob and turn wow. the knob to so go burk burk. Like if you wanted to flip five channels, it would go brat 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 brat. I got all the way around. My, my parents in their bedroom got one, and it had thirteen channels because that was you know thirteen was about it for VHF, and. Uh, 13 different tuners so oh you open this little door and you had this little tool on the door you'd put in there and you'd tune it to whatever channel you want oh we had that i never knew what that did as a kid yeah. like and then you, know, you didn't want to screw it up a little piece of plastic that had a number on it or abc or nbc whatever you'd slide that into the door mm -hmm. and when you close the door when that channel was on the light came from behind and it, it lit, lit up, up the yeah. the it was a mine was a push button you pushed each yeah one, yeah like on each. Similar, fantastic that's yeah. crazy oh, oh. Kids out so that, there, you just the don't know what we had to do. <laughs> yeah, you missed you missed the good time. Uh, I, I remember the, the variation of these. So the sentence here is that a 1971 receiver will, receive, will feature the latest in the art of solid-state modular plug-in circuitry, motorless remote control, automatic fine-tuning, and other features designed expressly to fulfill hotel-motel mm. requirements. I'm not sure what hotel-motel requirements are that, that different than anybody's home. Then they had a multiple outlet system, which is what in a way there's today to feed entertainment information and educational programs to each of the guest room receivers that has been engineered to provide sharp clear pictures with high reliability the number of available channels 12 plus fm fully optimize the utility of color television then they have amf and radio which they call decorator styled controlled <laughs> panels built into the room furniture are proposed to further enhance guest satisfaction i picture this just built into a nightstand or something is that yes yes i remember going to hotels in the 70s and i remember 
that was type of what happened. That's pretty it's, cool. Like I think that's yeah. slick. Like that's almost to me like the uh, the current. Like you walk up and there's like the USB plugs built in. You know, not yes, not on the exactly. lamp, but it's like actually built into yeah. the furniture. This is the version of that at the time. And now we're back to the room status made locator. I love this. This system expedites the renting of guest rooms, which is an interesting term, by providing current status information on every room. Registration and housekeeping functions can see at a glance the condition of all rooms in the house, the house, plus the location of the maids at any given point in time. Now, I don't know how they know where the maids are. I guess they're checking in on oh, something, right. but well, that's here, a yeah, it's, scary. it's in the next sentence. Oh, yes, maids insert a key plug into a maid jack <laughs> in the communications console in the guest room to signal her location and completion of work. That's so right. it's like, a, you know, you come in, you're the maid, you, you check in, you put your key check, in there, exactly. and that lights yes. up a light, tells whoever you're outside, and, you know, everybody uh -huh. else, you're inside, I, and that's it. I you bet the two of them have there. to turn the keys at the same time. In order yes, <laughs> and if they don't, yeah, the world ends. Yeah. <laughs> Reduced personnel requirements, faster room turnover, and better guest services are the advantages being obtained daily by hotel and motel operators using the RCA signal systems described above. So I guess this is already being oh. used. The embarrassment of taking a guest into an unmade-up room does not occur. Because <laughs> it's like going to have a uh, green light outside or something. The maid turned her key to the left and is done. RCA signal systems are now used in approximately 100,000 guest rooms in the United States, providing simplicity of operation, high reliability, and at a glance read at a reasonable cost. So I did not actually realize, I hadn't read this, I didn't remember that point that RCA actually, I guess, was already somewhat in the hotel uh, operations business before this, and I guess that's why they thought they could do it. Um, so that's the end of the hotel and room communication. Uh, hotel and room communication system. Then there's a system about mobile communications, about how people who work at Disney World will have different radios, uh, pagers, and portable radios and vehicle radios so that they could talk to each other. And RCA wasn't that. In fact, on my website, I do have a, a RCA walkie-talkie proposal, I think, that was given to Disneyland from 1960 or 61. Um, so RCA has been... No, that's Motorola. Never mind. Motorola is doing that. Sorry, not RCA. So now on page... 63 we have a very interesting graphic that shows the timeline of when all this is supposed to take place so they show the end date of uh, october 71 and they have so they have a column for every month from december 1968 through october 1971 and they have uh the different phases or the different milestones broken out into water power sanitation and attractions here they have uh as how noticed when he and i were talking holiday land is mentioned as one of the attractions which How yeah which so holiday land i believe was going to be it was situated between tomorrowland and fantasyland uh it's in some of the very early documents from the 19 from 1968-1969 and i think it was kind of like the corporate getaway section where maybe they would have picnic tables and places to have corporate events at the magic kingdom much like that I think there was also a Holiday Land at Disneyland when it first opened, which eventually they put the circus thing there. Um, so it, it never made it. It Like I said, it appears on a bunch of early stuff, and I never quite figured out what it was until Ted and I were talking. I'm like, oh, it must be that thing. Um, so, uh, yeah. So they that was included here as, as one of the lands. Um, you know, the other neat thing I wanted to point out is how well RCA did this. They used the term program management program management earlier pmo they've got yep. this timeline let's be honest it's 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 almost like a gantt chart 
project manager Gantt chart. Yep. I mean, they re- yep. you can see they, now they tweaked and tuned it to be to their audience, but you see what they're doing here. They're taking classic program project management um, capabilities that they have and putting it into a digestible format. So each of these, nothing here has more. Like everything here has maybe uh, eighteen months to get done. Um, they have Tomorrowland, Adventureland, Main Street, Frontierland, Fantasyland, Holidayland, Liberty Square, Hotels, and Monorail. Oh, Monorail has almost the shortest amount of time. Obviously, it's not the construction. Yeah, of the go monorail, ask Tom Nabby if that was the case. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, this chart looks to me crazily ambitious. I can't imagine, again, how you can implement something like this that seems very new, but very, you know, what the all the antique stuff that you know, all the an, antiquated ways this had to be done then to do this in that amount of time. But as you said, it's this graphical that says here this is going to be done. Uh, they don't talk about what happens if it isn't done. By the way, it doesn't really get. They don't really address that. Uh, then they have a statement from Roy Disney and a picture of him. And now they talk about the last section of the document, Walt Disney World in 1981. So we're 10 years later. We have a picture of Progress City again. And it says Epcot, the experimental prototype community tomorrow and other elements of Walt Disney World, the jet airport, the industrial park, the enlarged entrance complex and monorail will grow out of the economic base established by the 1971 complex. Epcot and related elements will represent the culmination of Walt Disney's vision of how future urban life can be enriched through coupling technology with human ideas. In a larger sense, Epcot as reality will represent just the beginning of the dream. Walt Disney World in the decade following its opening will be the result of a coalition of productive forces set in motion by Walt Disney, RCAA, in its proposed role as a major participant for Walt Disney World's information communication system, has jointly defined with Disney a system, WEDCOM, that will facilitate continuous evolution of new and better ways of American life. Now the next page, WEDCOM in 1981, the Epcot era, is envisioned as having broad functional components, education, health, safety, utilities, municipal government, monetary, transportation, recreation, in addition to the vastly enlarged operation. You know what? That's what we've always been missing, the municipal government, monetary, utility pavilion at Epcot. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To ensure that Webcom can be economically evolved to meet these requirements, three important principles will be observed. Modular design concept, planning by the program management office, which will formally address the requirements for planning, and the application of proven standard product line equipments will be made. Then they get into each of these sections, education, health, and there's more images now of different people sitting in front of some sort of television or computer system, studying or listening. They talk about education and health, safety, utilities, municipal government. WEDCOM's computer operations will provide automated county and municipal tax services. That's exciting. TurboTax. School, school administration records will be gathered, manipulated, and reported via WebTom's computer. The current status of legislation, legislative actions and bills will be automated and available on a real-time inquiry basis. This would replace Dominion. We wouldn't have had all these alleged voting fraud. We'd have WebCom making sure everything <laughs> goes okay. Um, and it says RCA has developed such a system for the legislature of the state of Florida. So they were already involved. And they've gone into monetary and recreation. They go into all these different areas. About this, how is pr- this is super interesting because a lot of this is is predicting the future, uh, the, these few different areas. And it's, it's insane to me, some of this stuff. The monetary, I like that uh, purchase and transactions will be accomplished through automatic debiting of bank accounts. 
which I picture my Apple Watch when I pay at the gas station. Like I don't have to, you know, just comes right out. And then credit card operations will expand to include transportation and entertainment. And it says right before that, online remote terminals at the point of purchase will handle the transactions. And same oh have today. Yes, um, and then they actually they actually have a they have a picture of one of those old school telephones where you would put the card in and it would dial automatically from that. But actually, it's a credit card dialing in to. Be approved. They say uh, you'll get live coverage of selected sporting events. I mean, t- come on. I know that wasn't that big then, but you know, at the same time, that's that's like the norm now. And it says in the Epcot era, Walt Disney World will have a complex transportation transportation network, people movers, a monorail, two levels of automotive transportation, and a jet airport. Several elements of Wetcom will support this greatly expanded network. Uh, they talk about. Um, <laughs> Other areas of safety and um, utilities, and then they end the document with a, a big image of RCA offering one place to get everything: one source for master systems, one source for servicing. It's a graphic with the number one in the middle and all these different things that RCA can do, saying how Wedcom is basically going to provide all of it, so it's one-stop shopping for everything you need for now and for ten years from now, and uh, theoretically for the future. And then it winds up kind of rehashing the proposal and talking about how uh, RCA is the great partner for Disney and that uh, the last sentence of that section of the whole document says, uh, RCA feels that no other company could approach Walt Disney Productions with as much justification in proposing to serve as the information communications contractor for Walt Disney World. If I read this document was sitting there, it would be hard for me to not believe that because someone else would have to come along with such the detail and again i think maybe motorola like ibm i guess did anybody else do something like this so it's a great question that i've been trying to figure out since i got this i cannot find any record of anyone else competing for this somebody they had to get like bids you know like let's let's see what people got or i don't know that's what i haven't found that how do you have any information no so so my gut tells me that this process probably would have been started with um, with companies that they already had tight relationships mm. with. So I, I don't know when the RCA relationship with started to happen because I don't believe they had sponsored anything previously in the parks. But they were definitely cozying up to like very particular members of, you know, of the corporate world to get this stuff done. You know, U.S. Steel, you know, we we, we found out later on, you know. Um, did that stuff so, did the stuff with the kid so I don't think uh, I think they probably would have would have just gone to a few vendors and I also highly suspect um, they would have looked to have these people also try to do some sponsorship deals with them to um, to sponsor attractions and things so that would have offset some of the costs involved they probably would have traded out uh, saying like, oh well, instead of us paying you this money, it's like we'll have you sponsor an attraction instead, um, because they did work RCA very hard <laughs> um, to do a, an attraction based on this stuff. Uh, I don't know if we're ready to talk about that yet, but you know, one of the early ideas was to actually have this control center be an attraction in Tomorrowland, and there's a press release that went out on the April 30th press event uh of 1969 where they proposed that it's like this rca control center would become an attraction in tomorrowland um that you could go and see and as you kind of mentioned todd this 
concept eventually became the Astuter Computer Review mm-hmm. and Backstage Magic. Uh, and there's a John Hench sketch that was put out during that time. It looks remarkably like what Backstage Magic and Computer Astuter Review turned out to be. Right, right, yeah. It really looks like it's amazing. It's the, I mean, they're just sitting here. They're taking this all in, whether they go with it or not. They're the Imagineers' ears and eyes are are listening and watching. Yeah. So they, uh, you know, they tried to do that, and and it's um, as Ted alluded to. We we found out RCA decided to get out of the computer business uh, in what was it. 70, 71, they announced Late 71, they announced it, and then 72, they didn't. So it would have been around when this was going into effect. Yeah. And I can't imagine what would happen if they did this. Would they not have gone out of business, or would they have gone out of business and just kept this yes. running as it went So on? the head of RCA decided they didn't want to be in the computer business anymore, which they had been in for at least 10 years. Uh, and they sold all the computer business off to Sperry. Which is how Sperry became the <laughs> became the partner of of Disney and ended up being the sponsor of the Studer Computer Review Sperry Univac uh, in '82 when Epcot Center opened. So there's a direct line there of how Sperry ended up being you know continuing to be involved with them. Um, but yeah, it was incredibly ambitious. They um, Instead of putting this out for public display, you know, Dax just kind of ended up as this thing underground that no one could really see down in the Utilidors. Um, they did go after RCA to sponsor another thing, which ends up on early maps um, called Computerama, because computers were still kind of mysterious. And, and there was this other thing that John Hench mentioned in one of his, his books um, was a show called Alice in Computerland. So I guess once RCA decided we're not going to do the computer thing anymore all of these ideas for very computer oriented attractions for tomorrowland just kind of evaporated uh they tried marty sklar says in his book they tried to get them to sponsor a new version of mission to mars where where they went into the computer uh instead of going to mars and that got scrapped the rca wasn't interested and then finally uh when they set things up properly um, I, th- I think they had some other stuff up on the wall or something, and the guy who was the head of RCA said, oh, what's that? And they're like, oh, that's Space Mountain. You could sponsor Space Mountain. And they ended up sponsoring Space Mountain and then made the pre-show very RCA technology heavy and then making the post-show, the home of future living, a veritable showcase to RCA's technologies uh, of the early 1970s and their TVs and how that might apply to future living. So... Some of these ideas kind of lived on in the home of future living, but a lot of this stuff just kind of didn't happen. I guess the world wasn't ready yet. So in the hotels, methods, and procedures, I'll just summarize what I read uh, when I reread it tonight. There's this document um, that talks about all the different procedures from April 1971. Basically, there seemed to be three different things that actually made all this happen. There was a combination of manual cards and people writing things down and using paper that was printed, there seemed to be some sort of lighted dashboard that was sitting in a room, like a big board that had each room of the hotel assigned to it, and people would uh, somehow use that board to block out when someone was in the room or not in the room, that they've reserved it and how many days they were in it. It seemed both kind of a hybrid of electronics and manual 
somehow indicating on the board that the room was occupied. And then there is references to video data terminals and how the computer system would essentially keep track of who was where. So it seemed like, not that any of this was implemented, but when the hotels actually were being opened and the planning was six months out now, April 71, it was a combination of manual, uh, lighted boards, and some sort of video data terminals to make it work. But they don't reference WEDCOM at all in this or RCA. It seems like it was maybe something that Disney built or got someone to help them build, but it, it seems more internal. Yeah. So that's that's it. That's Project 90. I don't know anything more that, you know, I, don't have any, I haven't seen any other documents out there that predate this or post-date this and not sure how it all ended up not happening, assuming that that's the case. That's quite an amazing story. Uh, and just to sit here and, and think about all the different things that you know, it could have been, or all the things that, as I mentioned, got Imagineers' thoughts reeling and coming up with different ideas. It's really quite the, quite the document, and it, I can see why Ted. This is one of your, you know, or is your favorite in the whole thing. It it really encompasses what we want as guests, what Walt Disney World wanted as a company, and what RCA wanted to get in there. And I, I guess in the end, we at least we got some cameras at the end of. Uh, Space Mountain looking at us, right? <laughs> that's where those security cameras went. They just pointed So that's really cool. So we don't know if there was any follow-on, anything to this. We don't know anything about the meetings surrounding it or who chartered it or anything. I have not I have not been able to find anything about it. We've done some digging. Um, maybe some of your listeners know or there's something out there I haven't stumbled on yet. But uh, I even asked, when I went to D23, I asked one of the Imagineers who spoke about it, they didn't know what I was talking about. Oh, and, oh, and an Imagineer who seemed to know more about the past of the company, not just somebody current. Um, but I don't know if Tom Nabby or any of your, kind of the connections you have, have any awareness yeah, of Yeah, we'll definitely, we'll definitely ask around the next I, time. I think it's interesting. I'm, I'm online here on, it says September 17th, 1971. That's when the board decided to close its computer systems. Yes. And, RCA did. Yeah. What's the timing on that? Is it like they didn't get the bid, so they're out? Like, did Disney know they weren't going to stick long? That's. I've been wondering that too. Like, if they, when did they know that? Because that's uh, that's not that far from this. I mean, that's when you know that's two weeks from the park opening. So, absolutely, would love to know how that timing worked. Like, if Disney was so tight with them, they probably right. you know, a couple of drinks after. Hey, are you guys serious with all this stuff? And then, you know, it's like, look, hey, I don't want to tell you. Nobody, I didn't tell you this, but we're talking about pulling the whole computer division, so don't sign with us or whatever it was. You know, it's it just somebody had to know something, especially back then at that that point. I would agree that that could be why it fell apart, is because they knew they were getting out of it. Or it could be, as you said, because they didn't get it, they pulled out. And had they gotten this, maybe they wouldn't have or passed it over to Sperry. You know, maybe Sperry could have picked it up. Yeah, I mean it's certain. But yeah, that timing is. It very certainly would have been a feather in the, their corporate cap had they been able to get this and implement it, and it, it would have been a showcase to the world. Yeah, which is what I think was the most benefit for them is that they would be able to say they run that, and that would have. That's an entree for anything they would have done to say we run the communications as Walt Disney World. I mean, that's a really impressive. Uh, resume point, uh, and RCA, you know, we, you know, RCA struggled after that. As we know today, their that name doesn't mean anything to anyone anymore. No. 
Ted, I appreciate you uh, sliding in here in in, uh, in in Brian's absence, and uh, this was a great. I I didn't know the detail that this was going to go into, and uh, I really appreciate you bringing it and sharing the document with us. And uh, please get a fireproof blanket for it or something to wrap this puppy <laughs> up uh, waterproof. Put in some yeah. bags. So uh, it's great. Well, um, as we wrap this up, how I, you added a couple new shirts, I think, uh, last month to our to our T Public site, if I recall correctly, right? I did. I don't even remember what they are, but uh, you did the Wed look. Transportation System. Oh, that's right. That's Ooh. right. That's one of my favorites. So, so back in the eighties, uh, Disney thought that they would get into the business of selling people movers and monorails. Twice they tried to do this in the seventies and then the eighties to uh to municipalities and they successfully did do it in um what's there was it the dallas airport or was it houston, houston in the houston, houston airport. airport they did manage to sell one somewhere one one <laughs> one, uh, one. <laughs> and so uh so this was the logo of the now defunct company that uh tried to sell people movers and monorails to uh to other places and uh so yeah so since no one's using it anymore i thought we'd pull that one out and recreate it and let the folks uh have the inside joke to where we go don't i don't we have on I the just, store rca as well don't we have the dog we do we did nipper. we have we have the nipper in the ufo from uh space mountain from the entrance where you would walk into it yep that's right because he's public so, domain right yeah by the way i just published to the site the 1981 disney annual report and in that report, in the financial review, is uh, in the consumer products and other category, is $10 million in revenue from the installation of the Wedway People Mover System oh, at the wow. International okay. Airport. There was a small profit on this project, which was accounted for on the completed contract method. So they did see by in 81, I think they were expecting that that would be the start of something, which it was Yeah, not. that's too bad, too, because it wasn't that. I did get to ride that one time, and I, I think it's. I think it's reached, I was looking it up one day and it had reached end of life and they were looking for contractors to come in and either refurbish it or replace it. I think they replaced it finally. So it's gone. I think it is gone now. I, yeah. Like the tracks are probably the same, but they have a different system on there now. People movers at airports are fun. I mean, that's one of the few places where you really get to use them. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things that just never really took. There is, I had a project in Dallas of all places and there was a people mover system connected to the office building and some of the hotels around there um, that ran from time to time. And we had a people mover in Tampa that ran from the convention center out to Davis Island where there was like a mall. But that again, it like some of that stuff has fallen. Like that got demolished, fell out of favor. No one was using it anymore. Um, it's funny. It's like it seemed like a really good solution through the 80s. And then it just kind of has disappeared and gone by the wayside well i always pretend the orlando system that moves you from the airport to the terminals people mover i i choose to believe that even though i think people it's not but it makes me feel like i'm i'm starting my my resort yeah experience. first ride right of the trip that's yeah. what i look at yeah. Yeah, yeah we have we have two of them in tampa we have one that goes but well, we have multiples. We have ones that go between the central terminal and the air sides. And then there's another one that goes from the central terminal to all the parking garages. And my kids love to ride that one just as much as they love to ride the monorails at Disney. They get a big kick out of just riding those things around. So they're great. I love I love that stuff. So how maybe we'll see something in there for Project 90. So Yeah, let's see Check what we can out. do. Oh, that's yeah. a great idea. 
All right. Well, again, thanks to uh, Ted for joining us tonight. Really appreciate it. And uh, thank you. Yeah, great to have you. And thanks to all of our listeners out there. If you can give us a review and a shout out on iTunes, we'll be back in January 2021 for a new episode. So we haven't even thought about that yet. We've got to get all these dino girdies out the out the door in the next couple of days here. So Hal and myself and Brian are going to be busy distributing and doing different things. I, I think I printed 300 labels tonight, uh, shipping labels. So got a lot to do. I can hand deliver a few around here. <laughs> I, I saw a couple in Ohio, there you Northeast go. Ohio. So, so um, but we appreciate everybody's uh, donation. So if you can check it out at uh, retroww.com forward slash support us for our store or L- go to lbvhistory.org forward slash donate. Appreciate your time and, and money and uh, helping us keep this show on the air. Uh, with that, like I said, we'll be back next month. If you can, give us a shout-out and review on iTunes or wherever your favorite podcasting app is. And uh, with that, Brian's not here, but we'll let him take us out. Follow the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society on Twitter and Instagram at LBV History and on the web at lbvhistory.org. Follow Todd McCartney and Retro WDW on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Retro WDW. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com. On Twitter, follow our web designer, Jason Bartell of Deepwater Studios, at JasonDWS. Our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner. And follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, on Twitter and Instagram, at GoAwayGreen, and on the web at KingdomOfMemories.com. For JT Couser on Twitter, at LS1JT on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring, and on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Brian P. Miles. Retro Disney World is the monthly podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society, a nonprofit, nonpartisan, tax-exempt 501c3 organization, and is not affiliated in any way with the Walt Disney Corporation or any of its subsidiary or affiliated entities. Leads the way. Leads the way. See you